Hello, Cyclocross friends, and thanks for tuning in to episode 265 of Cyclocross Radio. On today's show, we're joined by Elizabeth for the first time this year and also Zach, and we're talking about the first round of the Mountain Bike World Cup XCO that took place in Brazil, and that's it. Then that took up the whole hour. It was a great conversation. It's great to have Mountain Bike back, and we're going to get straight into it after I tell you about our sponsor for this show, which is Endura. I was at Sea Otter this past week and got a chance to hang out with the team from Endura and also see some of their athletes. Uh, They are sponsoring the Atherton Gravity Team. So those guys were here uh, competing in the downhill at Sea Otter and also the Enduro and the Dual Slalom. Uh, and Andreas uh, Kolb, great, great run. I think he got third place in the dual slalom. But the cool thing is is that they are wearing the new Endura footwear. I think they, they have the cocoa-colored ones, which are kind of red, uh, and they look super sweet. They're clipless pedals. They also have them just in uh, flat pedal version. They look really comfortable, and the cool thing is, is that you could get those shoes or anything at Endura for 20% off if you use the code WIDEANGLE20. That's all together, wide angle, and then the number two, the number zero. Endurasport.com, you get 20% off. This is a really exciting company. Go, go and follow them on Twitter and on Instagram. Let them know that... CX Hairs sent you here in the Cyclocross Radio Podcast. And again, Endurasport.com, Wide Angle 20, get 20% off your next order, and you can just be like the Athertons. So that's cool. Oh, 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 I almost forgot. Uh, Endura, Endura, and their shoes. They have this technology, this sticky foot technology. And on the latest Grodio episode, which is coming out basically at the same time that this episode is coming out, uh, Amanda and I, uh, well, Amanda came up with this cool um, contest, uh, this cool idea to, uh, to sort of promote the sticky foot idea. And we're doing a a performance of the week uh, of either somebody who has stuck the performance or somebody who is sliding and you know how you how you determine what a slide is in somebody's weekly performance is up to you it can be positive it could be negative but it makes a lot more sense if you listen to that grodio episode on sea otter and the lifetime grand prix and then you can give us your ideas and use the hashtag sticky foot all right. Also, uh, if you haven't seen it already, Hot Lap Summer, I know I talk about it a lot on this show, but I really think it's something that you all can get excited about. It's crit racing, but hey, bike racing is bike racing. It's exciting. You get behind the scenes. Look, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash wideanglepodium or wideanglepodium.com slash YouTube. Either way, it'll get you there. Hot Lap Summer. Episode two is out now. Episode three should be out soon. I don't know. Michael, no pressure. Okay, let's get on with this. We are talking Petropolis World Cup with Elizabeth and Zach. It's episode 265 of Cyclocross Radio, and we're doing all that right now. Uh, Okay, I'm just going to start. We are back in the media pit, but 
it's the mountain bike pit this week. So we got Zach here, and we also have Elizabeth back for her first first time for this year. We are talking about the Brazilian World Cup. It's not Metropolis. What was it? Petropolis. Petropolis. It, um, it sounds like something from that movie Brazil. <laughs> well, that, that that they could have they could have played with that so much more. It could have just added a whole new level of bizarreness to that to that race. Uh, but yeah, we. I mean, gosh, what a super exciting weekend of racing to kick things off in Brazil it, with the. You know, I, I think sometimes, you know, we hear it in cyclocross and stuff that it's, uh, you know, the crowds are in Europe and everything and that kind of stuff. And you get sort of get pinged when you go anywhere outside of Belgium or the Netherlands. But Brazilians showed up for for this race. It was it was a raucous crowd. Um, where do we want to I, I want to start with a short track, but should we just uh, anybody want to like chime in just on the venue itself and just how 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 it looked for this race? Well, they showed up, the crowd showed up in such force that uh, Anna Terpstra had to leave the traffic jam that she was stuck in to hop on her bike to make it to the race in time and put her Swanee crew onto some random people's motorbikes with their water bottle bags just to get there because the traffic jam was so bad for spectators trying to get to the race uh, that she was going to miss the start if she didn't do that. Um, I love it. It's like a Love James it. Bond, like a James Bond cold open to a, to a race yeah. they could have done. It's probably a good warm up. Well, so I have a question for you guys. Uh, you know, they labeled this as being at like a bike park of some sort, uh, you know, in uh, Henrik Amancini's hometown. But like you look at the course and it very much just seemed like they cut a course out of the jungle very recently. Uh, I mean, it had lots of really cool features, you know, neat rock garden, tons of dope rock jumps that, you know, Elizabeth was was in the group text was was texting about. Uh, so, I mean, do you guys have more of the backstory on like how this happened? Because it still felt like they just kind of hacked the course out of the, the jungle. So is this a, a bike park or what's is this building a bike park? There were a couple of those sections where they're going by that beautiful rock fountain and i'm thinking like today the dog walkers are back yes they have they have like reclaimed that park yes it did feel like and i mean i think there were there were a few notes in the commentary about avancini being involved in the building of this um his dad i think as well uh but it did have and i, I think i mean i i fell in love with this course uh in it just had so many elements that looked like a lot of fun and use of natural terrain and a natural environment. Definitely some built features to make it more of a you know World Cup level cross country course. Uh, but the amount of sort of playfulness to be built into a course that did look absolutely like it was cut into a jungle was super fun. And I think you don't, it did not have that groomed feel of a European bike park course. And uh, I mean, it looked in some cases gnarly, but in a really different way, like not, oh, these are sharp, crazy rocks, gnarliness built in, or these climbs are, you know, made to be very steep because this is what we're working with at a ski resort, for example. Uh, but I think the 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 way that it was using a natural environment and 
it, it gave me the feel. I mean, I think we, we were talking about this before we started. I live in Philadelphia. We have these urban mountain bike trails that make really great use of tight space in an urban environment. And there were parts of these course of this course that felt like that. It was like, oh, we've got this wild little piece of of rainforest, and we're going to cut some mountain bike trails into it. Loved it, absolutely. I think loved you could it. really. You could really see that on the descents as well, because there were these serpentine descents that were it looked super cool and they, you know, technical to the point, as you were saying, not technical because there were a lot of rocks in the way, but technical in that if you know how to r- ride those cambers, then you're getting down faster, and and that's what I love, and it really it's it's interesting too, and I think you you hit the nail on the head with you're getting out of sort of that European style of how to make a mountain bike course because it reminded me a little bit of what they had in Australia with those sort of ups and downs and sort of, you know, and, and we'll talk about it. It makes it harder to coverage because the rainforest is still there and they're sort of winding in and out of it. But as far as the racing goes, yeah, it just made it for a, it, it, a super dynamic and really, really fun race that not only in the XCO, but also as we'll talk about first here in, in the short track too. Yeah, I think that was my, I was going to get to that since we are the media pit, but you know, I think Bill, you've been on this for for years about how they've made it more TV friendly. I mean, and I think you saw that, Elizabeth, I agree. It, like it, it felt more natural. It felt less, you know, but at the same time, we love these other courses because they've built them, you know, like European cyclocross courses into being like TV production stages or whatever. And you had less of that. Uh, and so it made it a little bit difficult uh, to cover uh, and to keep up with, you know, some of the the descents and stuff to have good sight lines for the cameras uh, or whatever. So that was kind of, I think one thing that I noticed too, and this kind of played into at least some results, like it did not have the the big fire road climb. I think those are, you know, a little bit u- more usual. And I mean, which made the start more interesting, which we saw from uh, LeCompte. She was like, I'm going to get on this right away because like it was just more single file. It was narrower. It wasn't necessarily if you had a bad start, you could just power up the big, you know, four minute, <laughs> four minute fire road climb. So that was a little bit, I think, a little bit different. And then the second climb was literally single track. They were just, you know, on the broadcast. They're like, yeah, you're not, you're not passing anyone, anyone. In, yeah. And in that's, here. <laughs> I think, I think you're right, Zach. And maybe if this race continues, we'll see those changes. Hopefully not. But I, I think of, of a race like Andorra. Before the Red Bull era, Andorra was super fun and super like windy. And you can still, if you ever go there, you sort of walk around the course and you can see the ghosts of the old course and what what it used to look like. And you're like, wow, that would have been a lot of fun to see on TV. But the problem was it wasn't as easy to see on TV. So you have longer, straighter descents because you got a longer throw for your camera that can cover that the whole way. So, and it's a trade-off. I mean, that's what that's what helped make this sport that much more popular. So it is it is a trade-off. But it was great that we got this this race that still had that 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 good almost grassroots look to it. Or so yeah. Uh, let's start. You want to jump in just to the short track? Let's start with that uh, women's short track race. Uh, I think the yeah, it's it's been well reported, but this is uh, just to even just start here. We're, we're coming into this. A lot of people having problems with the travel uh, as far as health goes. Some sicknesses out there. Yolanda didn't start. I guess uh, Evie not feeling well, but started. Um, he's Pauline also not feeling well, but started. That that really affected not only the short track, but the but the next day. But definitely some some issues with the favorites coming in. But uh, let's let's get into it. Women's short track. 
One thing, I guess, before we get started that I noted, and it's worth noting that short track is its own discipline now, which threw me for a loop. If you're national champ in XCO, you don't get to wear. So we saw we saw Nino in his trade team. We saw so many trade team kits that we didn't see on Sunday. And you kind of had to like do a quick hot t- or, you know, a quick double take to be like, all right, who's who? Uh, you know, you have different people. You know, Cena Fry was in the the stripe, the rainbow stripes, Chris Blevins for the men. So I, to me, that was my takeaway. It's trying just to keep track of kits like between one race and the next. Well, and then even more confusing for that for the first race of the year, then in the XCO race, you have Pauline and, well, not to, uh, you know, spoilers, <laughs> but the winners of the short track races were then in the World Cup leader jerseys for the for the cross country you know 24 hours later which was kind of right funny. but the the short track does still count a little bit to the overall right it doesn't count as much but it's not non-existent so it's still a component but it's also its own series so it's kind of those two layers the grid position part is still key yeah that's still absolutely. especially in a race like this yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about, like, I know, I, I, I decided I'm going to get off the short track course. Like, this course was cool as hell. Elizabeth and I were texting. I was just riveted. Like, these were great races. Like, 20 minutes of just, I mean, like, every minute of racing this entire weekend was incredible. Like, I don't know. I love the course. I thought it made for great racing. That climb before the end was just, like, perfectly placed. Like, could not have done any better. I loved it. So super fun. So Zach, Zach, is this the is this what you're look? Because you know, you and I, and, and I think Michael sort of differ on this. You like the I think the where things where there are obstacles in the way where where there are pinch points in short track to sort of break it open. Where I think I'm more accustomed to the U.S. style of pack riding in a short track race you sort of keep it together you play it you know strategically you're looking for that last couple laps to see if you can make a move and then it might come down to a sprint this seemed like the perfect hybrid between between both of those philosophies i would agree i i I was gonna say that i mean it felt super tactical but it was still you didn't need the rock garden i was i was just riveted like it was so tactical you had attacks going before the last lap like you know, and I mean, ultimately, it kind of came down to that little climb, right? Like at the end, you're right. I agree, Bill. I was wondering what about it. I didn't think about it too hard. Maybe I've just changed over the past year. I loved it. I'm excited. Like this was just such a great weekend of racing. I was so stoked uh, for everything that happened. Totally. I mean, I think there were also like not just that climb, but there was also decisive entrance and exit lines from a couple of features. So there's an A line, B line going into the doubles section or it's not really an A line and B line. It's just like this line or that line. And the one line was much faster coming in, but did not set you up for the faster exit for the next feature. And so that was the, like, you could, you had to make a calculation there. Do I go the slower line, quote unquote, slower line through this? Will I have enough time to cut from the rider's right side of the track, which was slower over to the left, because that's the exit I want? So if there's another rider on the other line coming in, like you didn't have a spot to move over and you were going to be pinched out of the good line, leaving it. And so I feel like that, too, is this other piece, this other element that we don't necessarily often see on short track courses that made for a lot of fun because it was a decisive feature in a completely different way. It wasn't decisive because it was technical. It was decisive because it was tactical. 
can we talk about Luana LeCompte here for a second? Yes. I, I, I almost don't want to read my note, but I will, and I will apologize in advance. This was early in the short track, and my note just says, LeCompte is a dumb racer. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that, too. It's like they just let her do all of the work at the front, and they seemed... Everyone seemed perfectly okay to just kind of let her do all the work at the front. Uh, it was a very interesting tactical choice. And, and 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 to give her credit, I I just don't know. I mean, she's had success, and we'll talk about it again in the cross country. See, she's had success with this tactic, but I just don't think it plays as well in a short track, especially one without a a def- defining climb. Like I think it was that French. Uh, world cup right that that really had that big climb that you can just go and then you can get a gap i i don't know is it just like youth is it hubris is it just success that she has that confidence but it just seems like i i want i want her to do some road races that's that's what i want and then i think she's unstoppable yeah i mean that's a yes unstoppable being uh I think a very appropriate word choice there. Um, no, it was interesting. I think like for to see her assert such control at the front of the short track race, I was surprised by it, to be honest, based on the way that she raced short track last year. And I wondered almost if it was an experiment, like if it was like coach told me I should go try this. Um, because having her just lead and tow the field around was not something she typically did in short track races. And I think, you know, often found herself not so much in the mix. So I, I was curious about whether that was what it was, um, because it didn't seem, I, I don't know, I, 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 I disagree that it seemed dumb, but it didn't seem smart <laughs> either. Um, it seemed to be serving a different purpose than necessarily winning. And maybe just that purpose was make sure you get a front row start and don't get caught out. For sure. Yeah, I guess for a second, I was almost like, oh, if she's feeling this strong, like what's going to happen on Sunday? You know, because I mean, there were a few questions like, Uh, LeCompte had a a tough end of the season, right? She kind of didn't perform at the level that she was in Tokyo. And then she missed the last World Cup. She didn't she break her collarbone or something? She suffered an injury. So just two months ago, so recent. Yeah. So there were questions about where she would be. I mean, she's won. She won a couple races the first few that she did or whatever. But it was kind of like, oh, to me, that was the big question. Is LeCompte just going to run roughshod all over the field like she did for the first four races last year? And for a hot second, I was like, oh, wow, if she's this fit right now, we'll see what happens. But that that proved to, to not be the case. So, I mean, Bill, you're arguing for even more multidisciplinarity in sight, like, you know, mountain bike racers. Now you have to do road, but you also might want to do some cyclocross. And if you're doing cyclocross, you might want to do some mountain biking to do road. Uh <laughs> I just, I just think you, you you get a taste there. You get on a team. You sort of figure out tactics. You figure out what it's like to you know r- race a race, and then so that that's kind of it. Was just like that's and I, dumb is the wrong word to use. I shouldn't I shouldn't say she's a dumb racer. I have no place to say that. But it was just it was just interesting that tactically she wasn't as strong, and and which led me to somebody who in the past, Evie Richards is like, I don't do road racing. I don't do pack racing. I don't know how this works. 
coming in sick, sort of hanging out mid-pack, and then just really muscling her way to the front. I mean, she's just really sort of surfing the pack, looking super comfortable. And I'm like, wow, that's now I want Evie to go do road races. Everybody should just go out there and race a road, I think. I think it's just like get all these mountain bikers on the Cobble Classics now that we have awesome women's racing on all these uh, classic days. And I, I, I think they could just... Um, it, they they could mix it up well. It would be fun to watch. Well, I mean, it worked out for Pauline, right? Like she was a yeah. road world champion before she was a mountain well, bike it. world champion. Yeah, so. I mean, not to not to spoil it, but yeah, I mean, the person who won was like, and we've said that about her in the past. She just plays these races better than anybody else. I mean, just conserves her energy, picks her points. If you look at the lap times, you know, which we can get to, she just she she did it, it flawless. Yeah. Well, but you mentioned you mentioned Evie, though. I mean, she played Evie because Evie was like then in the last lap was like, I'm going to do Evie Richards things and try to like just muscle my way. Right. It just seemed like I mean, that last climb, you saw it with Nino at the end of the uh, men's XCO race, too. It was just really hard to pull. You know, you're pulling on the flats and then to turn it up into that, you know, that steep kicker or whatever that climb and do that i think there's just too much lactic acid and stuff and pauline just kind of surfed her wheel and made her move and it was like like you said it was just like vintage pauline ferrand provo winning a, a short track race i mean i think we could probably i can think of at least one where she did the exact same thing last year just vintage perfect tactics and then it was just such a short finish uh after that descent so uh, interesting. You know, Evie still did Evie Richards things, I feel like, at the end of <laughs> at the end of that race. I think also to be noted, uh, as a little bit of foreshadowing for Sunday, Becca McConnell was never not in there. She Yeah, was- I, I had that in my notes and I think that, that played over for the the men and the women. Once you saw what happened on Sunday, you could look back on the short track and say, Oh, if you're paying, if if you had a if you had a, a crystal ball, you know who was looking good as as far as Sunday went because they were just effortlessly at the front of that race. You know, look at uh, Steger as well, mm-hmm. um, McConnell coming in fourth. But uh, as far as this race goes, you know, you talked about the I was talking about the tactical sense of this women's race. All of their laps are like three fifteen to three twenty the whole way. You get to the final lap. Pauline Prevost pulls out a 307. I mean, she's she's like knocking off eight seconds from any other any other lap. And you look at LeCompte, she's slower. It's her, it's pretty much 319. It's almost her slowest lap for it. So it's it's just, yeah, it's it's just being smart and knowing knowing how to race these races. We said we weren't gonna like overcover these one last thing i thought mona yep. mona mittenwaldner she did pretty damn good in this race i didn't know what was oh, going to yeah. happen she was back there and you're like oh oh okay this kid's legit so like that was i was super impressed all right let's move on to the man oh no one last note and then we'll move over to the man just to, something to that we can think about coming into the xco race a, a little a little uh as uh the the tour de france guys would say a little argy bargy between uh Pauline and Loana. So my question for you to think about as we move to the XEO, bigger inner country rivalry, France or Austria? Ooh. Okay, let's talk about the men's uh men's uh, short track. Well, super bummer uh right from the gun for Vlad Dasklu coming out 
guns blazing on the Trek factory team and snapping his chain at the start. Uh, that was a bummer to see, I think. Um, that was just a bummer, to, just from a physical sense, too. Just thinking about all that power just straight down to his top tube with no chain. Ugh, ouch. That just... <laughs> Not cool. It hurt. It hurt. It hurt. It, it, physically, it hurt. Mentally, it hurt. And yeah, it's such a... Uh, just such a bummer, bummer, too. I mean, you know, one of the stories from the offseason was him getting uh, promoted, called up to the big leagues. He was on the Trek. I forgot what it was called. But, you know, he was on like a regional, more continental team, gets called up to the big leagues. And that's his first start in a World Cup for Trek Factory Racing. And to have that... I felt awful. I was like, I really hope that's a different Trek Factory <laughs> Racer. <laughs> Like, oh, like no. don't be Vlad. That don't be Vlad. Only, only the Romanian national champions kit. Like that primary color palette is only one man. I love it. I love it. But yeah, I mean, I think like there was to see that, that you know it was it was pretty elbows out for the men, um, start to finish. And I think you know we had a bunch of our sort of usual suspects in the front group. You've got Avancini, obviously who the crowd goes nuts for the entire way around the course. It was like watching moths to a flame. It was pretty great. Uh, you know, Andre Singh coming out strong. Nino is there. Flukey's there. Um, Litcher and Marot mixing it up in the front, which is not necessarily people who we expect at the front of short track, but good to see them hanging out there. Um, obviously was on Blevins' watch uh, the whole time and always keeping track of where he was hanging out. Um, and, you know, again, did a great job of positioning himself and, and staying in the mix, but it was, uh, it was pretty spicy. I mean, I think in some parts of this course, like basically we have like an all out double pace line, uh, with elbows out. So if you want to talk road racing, like it looked like it, but a lot more argy bargy, uh, a lot more back and forth on that. Um, and it, it really felt, I think, in some places where they were pushing the limits of how wide they could go um, because the course was tighter than a lot of short track courses in some places. And, you know, I think you really risked getting boxed in and not being able to move up if you were four or five wheels back, um, especially when they were in more of a double double pace line. There was just not room to move. And so if you were too far back and the move went on the front, um, you knew, you could tell from the way that they were riding that they knew that that was a risk. I mean, if you want, you talked talk about that. I was just looking at the time splits. 15 seconds faster in the last lap for the men than like the previous lap. So uh, I guess my question for you, I mean, one of my takeaways was just watching how aggressive Nino was. Uh, you know, I think everyone's covered. We all, his story is well covered at this point. Uh, he hasn't really been at the top of his game since 2019. I don't know. My I, I just watching that, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I mean, because he basically tried to control the last lap and he also flamed out <laughs> before that that last climb man it was like it was almost like a crit like the way they raced it it's like one of those with a steep kicker where you're like oh this could be decisive and it never is because everyone just goes as hard as they can uh and it ends up not kind of you know more positioning than like that hill or whatever but i don't know what were you guys thoughts i thought i was like oh this is interesting because he looks really good oh yeah he looks it was good. it was good recon for sunday <laughs> 
Well, it yeah. was like um, it was like worlds, right? Like where the worlds was, or maybe some races were like the end of the sing- the short track was kind of on the end of the the XCO course, and that was the same thing here. It was like practice for the end of the XCO race. If, for example, you come in a a group of three, I don't know, might become important. Might become important. I think also the way that, and I mean, I think Chris Blevins did this. Uh, better than anyone except uh, maybe, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Hatherley, diving the final descent and just, I mean, tucking and go, like, moving so fast, like, no breaks, all in, full tuck, full commitment, zooming through that last descent. Um, And... I think like that too was an that was an interesting foreshadowing twist to watch. Like, are you willing to risk uh, life and limb on this drop that looks steep on TV, which means we know it is way steeper than it looks? Uh, <laughs> that's an excellent point. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, kept remembering that and being like, "Oh, that's like really steep. It looks like a wall on television." That means it is a wall. <laughs> and Avancini, is such a tough one to 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 call here because he did what he had to do to make make the crowd happy. I mean, that guy was going to be aggressive. He was going to attack. But then part of you is like, well, isn't that what he always does? You know, even if even if it's not going to work out for him in the end, he's always going to like try to get out front especially if nino's there we know they're not the the best of friends so if nino's going to be near the front avancini's going to going to attack uh which i think kind of opened things up but it's like again in the in in this race you got murat up there you got hatherley who was a, a player in the xeo it was just really interesting to see the guys who are at the front of this who came into this with really really good form the 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 surprise for me was was Thomas Litcher. I just I don't know where he came from, but man, that's a guy who took advantage of of this race, getting second in it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think somebody who's you know not a stranger to a top ten, but not a podium usually. So uh, or ever, I'm not sure. But that was I think that was the surprise, though. You know, Marot comes in with a what looked like it was going to be a decisive chop. Uh, right before the end there. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, my, my notes included, holy shit, Hatherley, because that was a finish. My God, I, I didn't, I did not see that coming. Um, so yeah, great. I don't think well Lester played. did either. Oh, <laughs> I don't no. Think he did either. <laughs> when he pulled around him, he was just like, oh, oh, yeah. I don't have yeah, anything. Yeah. I left. just, I, I have, my notes are just Alan Hatherley, perfect read, great sprint. My my other my other note right before that, and this goes back to cyclocross days. Avancini, this is what actually what I want to say about Avancini. He had a chalkboard guy. Yes, he, he was like Sven. He yes. had a chalkboard guy out there. I don't know what was on it because there were no gaps or anything <laughs> to report, but he was holding up for him, giving him some sort of information. And like how you could possibly in in that sort of a race with a lack of like likely gaps that you can't see, um, and also going that fast that red line 
how you could possibly imagine processing whatever information was on that chalkboard is beyond me. But yeah, I, I laughed at that. that. That was really interesting. It's all about leaving nothing nothing to chance, you know? I mean, and then he, he finished fourth, told the, said that he was, uh, he felt like he let the crowd down. I mean, still had a good race. I mean, he finished two seconds back, but I mean, clearly. Clearly, it was one that, uh, you know, he had circled on his calendar. And I wonder if he was just like, all right, I'm, you know, like one of those, we're going to put everything out there. Like, even though some of them aren't going to help you, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm no chances, nothing left behind. Yeah. No and chance. I mean, I think it can't be discounted that I'm guessing that the level of media pressure on him, media obligations, crowd obligations, all of these other things, being in your not just home country, but, you know, hometown, um, being like as big of a star as he is. Um, I think it's it took a lot out of him, I'm sure, that was not uh, involved in, you know, race prep um, per se. And I got to say, you know, I know I've been a bit of a I've, I've, I've thrown shade at Avancini on this podcast in the past because I find him somewhat arrogant but this really like the whole thing did warm me to him i thought it was you know seeing him in interviews it was lovely to see how much he cared and how much it meant to him um to be able to bring this race to brazil to you know bring it to the fans and you know i think it's it it was kind of tough to see like i mean fourth place is nothing to sneeze at i think his sunday performance uh, a little bit more sneezable is that a thing? That's not a thing. I like it. Uh, well, it was, yeah, and it was really neat. I mean, first race in Brazil since 2005. I mean, that's 17 years, and it just seems like there was a lot of, I don't know, I guess it's something that I can identify with, you know, with when we brought cross world cups to the u.s it was like someone decided they were going to do it and there was a lot of just like heart and soul behind making that happen uh and it seemed like that that came across and it was like you said it was just really neat to see how many fans were out you know and just so raucous and it looked like a party it was like wow i i wish i was sweating my my balls off in in the jungle right now (laughs) yes Yeah. So in the end, Alan Hatherley takes the win. Great, great win for him. He's a guy I think that we've all looked at that has shown that he has the ability to be at the at the front end of this race. So to, so to get a result like that is I think huge for for his confidence going forward. One one last note that I, I noticed this during the during the short track. I don't know if you all did or or what section it is exactly, but there's one kind of harder part of the track that is called tricky section which i thought was great just just yeah that's uh that's part of the xco i mean that's a good segue to the xco course yeah. like i saw that i wanted to comment on that <laughs> the tricky section i mean i don't know like is that gonna be a, a thing little this on year? Is that what shimano shimano sat around they're like we have so many supply chain issues right now. We're we're dealing with it. You know, they've got the marketing folks dealing with supply chain issues because no one can get an eleven speed cassette and chain. And they're like, screw it. We tricky section. All right, next next topic. Like that's what we're calling we're calling our section this year. I mean, twenty twenty to twenty twenty two, arguably the whole thing is a tricky section. <laughs> Man, it's been for Shimano, that's for sure. Yep. <laughs> Uh, maybe they're just like they're 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 like capturing what it's like to try to find replacement parts for your bike. It's it's really tricky. That, uh, it that's is. it. It was like, it, isn't it tricky, tricky to try to get our stuff? Let's call the section that. So. Don't break anything, <laughs> racers. We might not have a replacement. Okay.
Uh, should we move on to the to the XCO portion of the racing? Yeah, starting out starting out with the women. I I would like I feel like we could almost just do like a dramatic reading of Elizabeth and I texting each other during this race. It was pretty like, good. <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> uh, to like contemporaneously capture our thoughts. <laughs> as far as it was on the group, was a lot of whoa, oh. <laughs> well, that was after the the resignation, and we we in lap two were like anything can happen question mark <laughs> yeah so start of the women's race kind of looked like a start of a lot of uh last year's races at least the first first uh two-thirds of the season with Luana LeCompte kind of taking the whole shot and and not looking back which, which again going back to my dumb comment here smart because what what we saw was you you come out that start and you make that left turn for the climb right around that pond that I was, or the little like bench and, and fountain I was talking about. And if you weren't in the first, I would say the first 10 got through smooth. The first 15 had to slow and past that, you may have to go foot down. Yeah. Oh, are you talking yeah. about the little, the little hump? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. my God. Well, it was like, it was like the little left turn. Yeah. Little left turn over the hump and then up to the climb. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, to be fair, she uh, was, she didn't take the lead until approximately one minute and six seconds into the race. That's, okay. Uh, All that right. Was Martina of, mm-hmm. Yeah. Was leading. And then LeCompte just like exploded and they kind of kept her wheel. I think it was like Stigger and someone else were there. Kind of Caroline kept her wheel for Boa. A hot second. Yeah. Yeah, and then like literally thirty seconds later, she had like an eight second gap at the start of the the climb. I mean, and extended out to about fourteen, I think, after the first lap. So no response really, like we saw all of last year. Yeah, I think it was unfortunate in that um, Becca McConnell was behind either Laura Stiger or Cena Fry uh, and couldn't get around and. Uh, on the climb because, like we were saying, at this tight single track, there was no passing. Uh, and so it looked like Becca was jammed up at that point. I wonder, had she been positioned ahead, if she had been able to stay with Luana? Because then lap times, once Becca did get around, were perfectly consistent between Luana and Becca for the first, I think, three or four laps. They were like ba- or three laps, they were like identical lap times um, until Becca slowed down do you, a bit. Do you think possibly it could have been a blessing in disguise? Yes. Though, do you think that that her not having clean air in front of her, she didn't burn a match that maybe she didn't have to yeah. by just being able to sort of be there and work it out until she got in front and then start to sort of sit in on that second spot? Yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, the answer is yes. Um. Right, of, course. Yeah. Well, of course. We need to preface this that, yeah. of course, this entire discussion is the Elizabeth Reincourt uh, redemption tour, of course. So, I mean, let us not, as we're describing this, let us not forget that Elizabeth has been in Rebecca's corner since I posed the question, is Rebecca McConnell elite? Uh, she was pro. So I just want to make sure that folks remember that as, as we discuss yeah. this, that she is just like doing touchdown dances as we have this discussion. Um, right. And, and, basically. and if it's not obvious yet, we don't have to dance around it. Beck McConnell won this race, <laughs> you know, so we can so we can sort of talk about how that happened. But that that's the ultimate result as i was getting ready to podcast tonight my husband's like you're just gonna spend an hour saying i told you so aren't you (laughs) 
I mean, so I was, I was like, I was texting Elizabeth. I was like, all caps, anything can happen. It's become a joke in cyclocross. Elizabeth, though, like quite literally in lap four, like anything happened. It anything did. happened. We willed it. We willed it into existence. We totally willed it into existence. Um, and I think like, so this was funny because it wasn't until in retrospect, uh, while watching the men's race that I realized that part of the interesting piece of the anything happened is that none of the men in the lead group, at least after the first lap, after seeing Nino take the beeline, the the men were all taking the beeline through the rock garden. The women were all taking the A-line through the rock garden. It didn't go well for Lecomte uh, on lap four, and suddenly we have one hell of a race. Um, and I think then we had, you know, it wasn't quite at the level of the like very infamous Labresse uh, finale of like what is 2016 season, I think where the, like the women's overall lead changed like five times in the course of 10 minutes. Um, But we did have some like consistent changes in dynamics of the race in the last couple of laps of the race, where it looks like somebody's got a gap that's going to be insurmountable, that's going to be the decisive gap. Like, I think it happens for Anna Terpstra. Then she gets caught up in lap traffic, and she's significantly slowed down by some lapped traffic, which is pretty unfortunate and pretty frustrating for her. Obviously, as a Becca McConnell fan here, I'm a Terpster fan too. I'm an everyone fan, but still, like that's a bummer for her, and I think like that that impacted her performance in the race. But then it's actually getting jammed up on a route that catches Terpster really off guard and makes her lose the gap. Like if she had not been in the lap traffic, would she have had two extra seconds, three extra seconds? Maybe would that have been enough? Probably not. But maybe you never know that frustration plays into it. But I think like the the way that these lap cha- or these lead changes happened really did feel like the the story of anything is happening over and over again. Well, I did uh, my my limited research here. I was I was texting with with Jen Jackson, uh, and she was like, "Oh, I I just got back from the sauna." Uh, so I think that, you know, one thing that we don't necessarily pick up and it didn't necessarily look that hot, but apparently it was really hot and it was super muggy. And you saw these different dynamics in the women's race and the men's race where you saw women just like leaving it going right from the get. Right. Like basically LeCompte was like, I'm a go and make the race. Whereas the men you saw like they just they when those guys got a gap, they just sat in. I mean, they sat in most of the last lap. Like they were, you know, and so you saw like Terpster went with two to go um, and she just I mean, she also died. I mean, that route hitting that route was like she had literally nothing left and was just like, you know, hit that and struggled. And so, I mean, to your point, it seems like Beck McConnell, maybe Bill was a blessing in disguise that like she was able to ride within herself. Like she kind of had that lull. And then once you once you see the rider in front of you, it's like, all right, like there's a huge motivational factor to have a 27 second gap down to eight, almost in a, a hot second. But I just kind of wonder if tactically that maybe because then LeCompte just blew up in the last lap when Terpstra and, you know, so it seems like I don't know. It seemed like maybe the men played the conditions a little bit better and that might've been a little bit wiser to, to not exert massive amounts of effort in those conditions. Well, here, here's what I liked about 
the women's race and, and how it played out is that LeCompte had this, what at home looked like possibly an insurmountable lead. At one point, she's up 27 seconds. McConnell is doing an amazing job just putting her head down and chasing and basically maintain, as Elizabeth said, maintaining that gap. You know, she's not, LeCompte is not faster than her. She's right there. Terpstra just race of the day. I'm giving her rider of the day. And I guess she was with Steger for a while and left her, caught McConnell. And then this is the point that I really liked. She caught McConnell and it wasn't like, LeCompte's gone. We're going to fight for second place. They just kept going. And once, once Terpstra sort of got on the, got on the, the, the accelerator past McConnell, McConnell sat on there. And then, you know, the thing with the rocks for LeCompte and everything happened, but they just kept moving forward. They were not giving up. They were just pushing all the way to the end. And that gave them the ability. They could have looked at each other and said, well, I want to be second seems pretty darn good. I'm going to conserve my energy to make sure that I can beat you at the end. And they didn't do that. They just kept going and that made it a a, a three person race eventually. And again, I think McConnell really, I, I don't know if by choice or just how it played out, you know, again, you can look at the result and go, of course, she was like the smartest racer out there, but she got a really nice, uh, ride on Terpstra, up, up to, up to, back up to McCon, uh, back up to uh, LeCompte, and then was able to to play it out the best of the three of them in the end. So, yeah, I just I, I like that. I like that they didn't they didn't concede the race. They just kept going, and they could have. I mean, so there were we all there did. were some good tactics. So, like the the good yeah. tactics in, in second and third, and then uh, I mean, it's cool that like I mean, Terpstra isn't necessarily someone. She's been in the top 10, top five, you know, not necessarily someone we talked about a lot last year or whatever, but it was really neat to see her just like go for it against Loana LaCompta and, you know, against Rebecca McConnell, who, you know, was racing for her eliteness, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was still really neat to see that that she was feeling good and, you know, she had a great race. And like you said, Bill, yeah, she kind of like worked her way up um, after kind of missing out the, the fast start. So. Uh, yeah, I don't well, know. and I I think she's she's she will be the first to say it as well as that she she is someone that in the past who has almost conceded those spots and 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 she didn't do this this race and she really just the confidence level of it you know this is this is a rider who was a U twenty three just looked like she was she was going to be on top of the world and then has struggled through her elite career I mean she's been on podium she's been up there but never really broken through and has just kind of stuck with it from, you know, when I, when I was working for Trek was the, uh, her last year on Trek. And then, you know, from there, they just kind of almost privateered it at the world cup level, which is just insane until she, she got this Prima floor, you know, signing and boy, is that paying off for them? I mean, she's, that's the, I may be the best Prima floor finish obviously on the women's side, I'm not sure about the men's side that they, that they've had. I mean, just huge. So it's, it's a really neat story. And I'm really, 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 I was so excited that, that, that she was able to pull this off. Yeah. I think, uh, I also, I mean, you know, can't believe I'm bringing this up, but it was road tactics, right? Like they were a chase group that actually worked like a chase group. Uh, and I think that's something that, that I, you know, and I always wonder about the sort of the calculus of this going through, uh, 
riders' heads when they're doing a chase and they think, like, if that gap is a minute, do you say there's no way? And you just go, like, we can't do it. It's the old Jens Voigt. This is impossible. Like, you, you can't do it. Like, the brake is going to get caught or vice versa. The brake is going to stay away. Like, where is that point? And I think in this range, like, we were under 30 seconds. That is well within the realm of possibility of a small bobble or a concerted effort to just keep pushing each other and to see two racers do that. Uh, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. It was great to see. And, and I think then it, it also was interesting to see Lecomte be in a position of not being solo off the front and having some group dynamics to deal with, which is something I think we have often lamented that we don't get to see what it's like to have her in the field and and you know jockeying for position and sitting in um so getting to see some of that and then all in all seeing all three of them pretty darn happy with their debut race of the season um Loana said in interviews that she was super excited that to race in like a hot climate instead of these cold alpine early season conditions. Uh, so I think, you know, all in all that too being an interesting when you consider the weather factor, this is somebody who came in saying they liked the, the hot conditions. So, you know, whether or not that plays out into fading at the end or not, um, it's an interesting, like, different way to start the season. And then that race for yeah. fourth was good, too. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, just just to put a pin on that, just seeing McConnell go all in. You know, Zach, you talked about that final climb. She just went all in on that and was just, like, basically in it to win it there and was able to take it through that descent and and, and hold them off. And the, the thing that you know that you're cheering for a good person and a, a well-respected person who's been at it a long time is how happy second and third were for McConnell to finally get that win, which was, which was pretty cool to see as well. I mean, they were just as excited, you know, it, not, they were disappointed they didn't win, but there was definitely the congratulations at the end seemed, seemed super genuine, but yeah, let's definitely talk about that. <laughs> that, that that race for fourth, the grudge match for fourth place. So good. Uh, this is where I'm glad that our camera work uh, was maybe a little all over the map because we did get some great shots of a real slugfest between our two Austrian friends, uh, Laura Stiger and Mona Mittenwaller, um, with some attacks, counterattacks, it was it was spicy. It was really spicy um, in a, a way that I will go get out there and say is pretty impressive for the end of a hot, full Olympic distance race. Uh, it had some, you know, and I think like seeing, you know, this is obviously Mona's debut at the elite level, uh, coming out of being the Lecomte of the U23s last year, comfortably riding well over a minute to two off the front of every race or most races. So uh, seeing how she would stack up in the elite field, you know, wasn't, wasn't up at the front, but steadily working her way 
through the top ten, uh, and then suddenly, bam, is uh, is really wrestling with her compatriot, who's you know only a couple years older than she is, still also quite young. Um, yeah, that was that was the part that I thought was interesting was that, and and where I, you know, and again they were fighting for that Olympic spot as well, so there was that competition going on. But Stieger, I think, is somebody who was is still up and coming racer, a a rising star, but was in the elite field last year where Mitterwallner is only, yeah, I think it's only like a year younger than her, but still in the U23. So you're looking, we're all looking at Mona Mitterwallner, you know, winning these races by five, six minutes and going like, this is a, this is a, just a, a world beater of a racer. And Laura Steger's the, they're like having to race against the elites going, I'm just as good as her. I'm only a year older, but I have to race the elites. You know, it's not fair to compare us. Uh, so I think, I think that messages may have been sent Zach. Yeah. I actually looked it up. I think like Shiger is 15 months older. Um, if I'm, I, <laughs> cause I was curious because, uh, you know, I mean, I think she, right. She aged up and she raced in the elites last year and looking at her results, she was top 10 pretty consistently, but not, not at the Loana Lacompta level, you know. Um, yeah, I, a great race too. I mean, she had a great race in the um, the short track race, and then you know played it pretty well. Like started off really well and held her spot there. And uh, you know, it was interesting to watch Mitterwalner because she was uh, she was like what tenth, and then you just you keep looking. You're like, oh, oh, okay, oh, oh, yeah, okay. So this this kid is legit, and she just kept kind of kind of moving up but and stigger did if i'm not mistaken she did this great course preview they had her do the the course preview which was pretty engaging and interesting so i don't know i feel like she almost to me like just kind of like was caught in the bad spot where the comp was so good and you're like oh here's this u23 rider just tearing it up there's this other rider turning in really good results as like a 19 year old or a 20 year old at the um at the elite level and you know folks kind of slept on it so um but i is there the rivalry? Like, do they not? Because um, it seems like Ferran Provo actually and LeCompte, like, uh, there's a little bit of tension there. Um, are we at that level with the Steger and, and Mitterwalner yet? I, are we uh, we overplaying this a little bit? I don't know. It makes for good. It makes for good copy. Okay. I will say the one thing in in Mitterwalner's favor, even though she did end up eventually losing that spot to Steger. If you look at their lap times in that final lap, she actually had a twenty second faster final lap than Steger. So she closed a huge gap past her, and then just wasn't able to to hold her off at the finish. It's pretty great to see a woman on the Cannondale team finally. Uh, the Cannondale factory team have a woman. I mean, hell of a pickup for them. Uh, <laughs> no no way like going right to the cream of the crop uh, in terms of young talent. Um, but I am excited to see that. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess leaving the, um, the elite women, I, I got one that we were talking about. Oh, yes. One more comment on the elite women. I think it is worth noting uh, Kate Courtney uh, coming in from a fourth row start and working her way up to a ninth place finish. Uh, not bad. Uh, I think, you know, she was really happy about it. Um, also, uh, Gwendolyn Gibson having a great weekend uh, all around with a great short track performance and also converting that into a pretty darn solid uh, cross-country performance. And that's this is her elite debut as well, I believe. I'm going to pull Michael here 
And I'm going to say, I was going to say, before leaving the elite women's race, I was going to mention Gwendolyn Gibson because <laughs> she really stood out. Although I noticed uh, that we were baffling Michael. She changed her Instagram handle. I don't know if this means that like she's reached a new level of professionalism with a 13th at a World Cup, but she's no longer Gwynnie the Pooh. She's just Gwendolyn Gibson on Instagram. I was kind of disappointed because that was really one of the great. I mean, that was up there with like Lancey (laughs) Pants as like one of the great uh, Instagram handles that carried over from a younger age. So uh, awesome to see, though, racing for the Norco team. I mean, just cool to see that um, she was the top American finisher in the short track race and, you know, came pretty close. She was ahead of Kate Courtney, who had. Yeah, I guess the the reason that earlier I was thinking about Kate Courtney with the start, she had a fourth road start. She had a really bad short track race, and I think that probably cost her quite a bit on the lack of the uh, fire road climb to start the laps. You know, she maybe even gotten caught up in that the melee at the the hump, the hump melee, <laughs> where we're like riders dismounting and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I she's one. Courtney is one that I think all of us have our eye on. She's had two pretty well. She had one really bad season. Last year, kind of derailed by the broken hand. Um, so I think that a lot of looking at her to see what she does and if she can get back to the form uh, that she was on when she won the World Cup overall in, in 2019. Yeah. Should we move to the men? Let's do it. All right. I've been workshopping this. I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's there yet, but I just want, I just want to try this out. This is my, um, this is my Rob Warner impersonation. Let's, let's see if I can do this. Oh, it's pretty good. It's not there yet, but you you're know, getting there. You're getting that's a, there. That's at least forty times during the race, and I love it every time. I mean, you kind of have his like sort of facial hair hair thing going on too, like a little bit longer. But you know, he's he's took off the cap. It's a new it's a new season for Rob Warner. It's a new Rob Warner. Yeah. I, I, it's going to be interesting, you know, this is the last year of Red Bull, so it'll be interesting to see what happens once Discovery takes over, you know, n- not to get off on too big of a tangent, but Discovery not really known for, uh, producing, uh, telecasts or more, they, they distribute them, they buy them and they distribute them and other people produce them. Red Bull is, you know, boots on the ground production company so it will be interesting to see what happens with these my hope is that discovery just hires the red bull team from the camera operators on up to the broadcasters but you know we'll see we'll see what happens it would be to say couldn't they just buy the product from red yeah i think i think they can i i I think that that's that's because those that team's not going to have a job next year. They're, you know, at least on that, on those grounds. So I, I hope that happens. I mean, when you got to think too, with the, the level of coverage that's been established and them stepping in, like if they step down from that, like it's going to be a disaster for them. And I, I, you would think now I know every time that we say you, sh- you would think like in cycling that cutting costs seems to win out, but you would think that someone would say, Hey, we need to not screw this up. At least, like, why don't we go with this thing that's been been working really well? Um, but all right, so my my take for this, like, I think for the women, we saw where Lecomte kind of animated the race. Like, I don't know, I was writing about it, described it kind of like cyclocross, where one rider's just like, I'm gonna set the pace, and y'all are gonna have to react. This elite men's race, hear me out here, was a gravel race. It was a war of attrition. Yep. 
Yeah, I was wondering how you were going to take it into a gravel race. Like, everyone can compete? Uh, no, just kidding. Everyone's a, Everyone finishes. Um, nobody finishes. Uh, yeah, it was a race of attrition. I mean, because there was a big group. There were 11 riders after the first lap, and then you could just kind of watch it get dwindled. Then it was down to eight, and then it was down to five, which I think was the first time that we had a true you know, kind of, I would call a lead selection. And then ultimately we, we got down to three, like, you know, it was, it was like unbound last year, you know, it was five and then it was three. Um, With a surprise other three who had not been in the mix at all coming in third through sixth though. It was a gravel race. It was a gravel race, like straight up. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, talk about that. That I mean, almost it was most interesting was four through six I, in a way. I mean, we did have the interesting dynamic where Vlad was back. That was really awesome to see. We had young man Vlad with, you know, old man Nino and <laughs> old man Max Marat. But Elizabeth, the, those four through six, that was like hella interesting. It was so interesting. It was like, oh, my gosh. OK, so one, who the hell is this Belgian guy? I was like Googling him furiously as this is going on. I'm like, this is not the same Belgian that we had last year. Who is this Belgian? Oh, he has had some middling success as a U23 on the European circuit. But like way breakout ride, way breakout ride for what is his name? Pierre de Framont, the cold mountain man. <laughs> What's his <So>, name? <laughs> Pierre de Fremont, which means cold mountain. So hilarious that, you know, you're racing in the jungle in Brazil. The man of the cold mountain crushes it. I think, you know, and, and then for Sebastian Carson Finney, who is someone who had much like the Laura Steger effect, like this like young upstart who's going to crush it and then ends up like kind of being a, a disappointing as he makes his elite um, debuts and you know first elite season second elite season coming in steady 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 and then suddenly it's like oh look it's like little kmc group train with Felipe colombo like hanging on for dear life to their little party toward the front um so that was a yeah that was exciting and as we just had a bunch of other riders who were like in the mix, in the mix, in the mix, gone. Um, Andre Sink. Andre Sink. Matthias Andre, Or as I was referring to him as Andre Sunk. Ooh. Oh. Um, well, and what happened to, so I was, uh, I mean, Chris Blevins was up there like in third and fourth early on. And he still, got the whole shot. Yeah, I was still watching like he was he was eight seconds back in lap three. And I looked at his Instagram to try to do some recon. And uh, he just posted like the some standard video that Specialized made or whatever. So I, I'm guessing he was pretty disappointed, but it seems like he just kind of blew up in the heat. So that was kind of a bummer to just you're like, all right, you know, top 10. Oh, oh, like he just kind of sank like a rock. I'm kind of curious if it was the heat or something that got to him for for how composed he was hanging in on those first couple laps i think i don't know from a from an optimistic view i think it's still 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 a good race for blevins and i think something that he can definitely build in build on when there you know these more power courses come in and something that he can take take advantage well of. and i think one of the other narratives in all of this is who did do cape epic and who didn't and he was on the podium at cape epic so not to be discounted that's 
you know, that's not nothing. So interesting. That's an interesting point. I actually have this in my notes because I was talking to uh, the mechanic for the St. Myron who uh, works for the Santa Cruz team. And he was, you know, know, it was uh, Keegan Swenson and Maxine Marat were paired up together for Cape Epic. Keegan Swenson is just an endurance just monster and can, can go forever. And Marat was having a tough time keeping up with Keegan. But what they were telling me was that it wasn't that he wasn't in shape. It was like he was on the sharp end for XEO length. Like the power was there, everything like he was just ready to roll. So he he wasn't able to hang on for those long distances, but they could tell that he was like primed to go for, and it, and it, you know, it showed in this race. So it was really interesting that he was able to do Cape Epic, but obviously he trained up for the XEO and then was just hanging on to these four hour stages. So right. it was, if anybody was able to just kind of like, you know, do that fine line between one and the other. I think Marat really just nailed it. Yeah, which I, th- I think it's a it's a fascinating thing, right? Like how an athlete's body responds to something like that. Like, do they, are they able to brain and body keep the focus on, yeah, but I'm actually want to do this thing? Or does their brain and body switch into, ah, yes, this is a gravel race. Um, If you want to use that example again, is like that they, you know, they get acclimated or adapted to that other format and some things are a little out of whack in sort of what habits are and aren't there or like what sharpness is or isn't there. And, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily the case for Blevins that he somehow, you know, untrained himself for the XCO distance by doing Cape Epic, but he might've been a little tired. Uh, yeah. I think Haley Batten probably fell into that same, same place yeah, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's just sort of worth noting that like, yes, that's a obviously good training and some people are going to come off of that feeling sharp and strong and others are going to have the kick in the teeth from that in the Brazil race. But the, you know, bank deposits made by doing Cape Epic are going to pay off in Alpstadt. Here's my question for you all before we get to the to the tactics of the of of, of the win and the the leading group. Has Flukiger returned to uh, like 2017 form where he's just going to crash every race? I hope not. I really want to see him pull it off. <laughs> he, I mean, he was like in old school form where. Sending it and, you know, just cause, of course, we didn't see, we didn't see what actually happened. We just saw him, uh, with an extremely dirty Jersey afterwards, but, uh, yeah, it just kind of, it, it, it reminded me of pre pandemic fluky when it was just like, I'm just going to send everything. <laughs> then, oh, yeah. he came away. Uh, I mean, so he didn't win, I guess, like, you know, we talked about, uh, four through six, but it just seems like one of the stories of this and, Maybe it was because it was such a close race that people I, I didn't feel like it was being focused on. But like Vlad Daskalou, I mean, he went from being this obscure British cycling hero. And I'm just going to assume that like there's like he's like a niche cult hero in Brit- British cycling fans. Right. Like gets pitters to the Olympics, 
Pitters wins the gold. I'm just assuming. <laughs> that's why you were saying British hero. I was like, where is this coming from? Uh, right. Because like, you know, that's how we knew him. And it was for like a 17th place finish. We're like, wow, here's this dude from Romania. You know, Trek sees something there. They invested him. They call him up. First, you know, we talked about the short track, but his first race, he's there. like incredible performance. Even finishing third. The kid's 24. Like, I don't know what else to say, but like. Wasn't it 2019? I think he had some really good. I, I remember when when we had those two races in Nova Mesto. I think that's that's the first time he really came to the front, and everybody learned who Vlad Daskalou was. I think the the interesting thing um, is that former Trek Factory Racing. Well, no, the form Maxime former. And then Vlad took his spot. So Trek Trek Factory Racing sort of, you know, a connection in second and third for those. But yeah, just just flip-flopping. But still, just such a great performance for your new team. Like, that they're invested in you. I mean, you try to think of, like, people who make a big jump and then have just this great performance. And it was just, uh, I don't know, it was really cool to see. Yeah, and especially after breaking that chain on the day, you know, and being able to fight back and get up to the front and just just show show himself was was pretty pretty awesome. I, I the, the guy that I remember with Daskalou cuz I think they were fighting was Koretsky who wasn't there and they were kind of talking it on the broadcast but Koretsky now has sort of gone the way of like uh, uh, uh of like mountain bikers of old who've now like shifted completely over to the road. Uh Rob Warner, no, I, uh, Brent Bart Brenchen says that he will he will be back for World Cups. I I I think that's still TBD. We'll see, but that was that was definitely a guy who was was missing out there. Yeah, Pipa's. Uh, I, I during doing the preview, I looked at his Instagram, and I guess there was some some drama when he signed the contract because he was still under contract with KMC through the end of this year, uh, and KMC was like, "Uh, uh, you don't you don't get to make this choice, dude." And then there was less news about it, I guess, during the off season. But he's all in. I mean, everything is just him on the road. He- um, he consulted with Wout, who just told him, he's like, dude, just write the check. Just write the check and move on. <laughs> May have been. I mean, and uh, Milan um, Milan Vader is another one that I will. It'd be interesting to see what he does. He's with Yumbo now. Yeah, um, but he, you know, had he said a that he's going to do. Crash. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so before that, it was like unclear what he was going to do between racing road and then mixing in uh, the World Cups. And yeah, so now, unfortunately, he doesn't look like he's going to be doing many much mountain biking here, which is a bummer. So I don't know, just kind of interesting that those are some of the names, I guess, that were that were mi- that are missing, who were names that we talked about a lot in recent seasons. All right, let's get back to the race. Maxime Marat, Zach, the mountain bike dangler. Wait, what? I thought that was the Changler. I thought that was Andre Sink. <laughs> well, if he's, I think he's sunk, over, then we need I think he's taking over the role. Okay. He's sunk. <laughs> he's the new Dangler. Okay. I mean, he, so many times he looked out of it. He was just, he was two, three seconds off that group when we came down to like the final lap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so not, not, yeah, he looks spent. He just looked like he was absolutely, absolutely spent. And then, you know, in the last lap, I think it was, they kind of let him lead up the climb. And I guess that's where it's, to me, it just seemed like they kind of were still riding faster than everyone, but they kind of reached a little bit of a, of a truce. I mean, obviously he was still, he was still hurting, but I mean, he was just kind of like crawling up that climb and everyone, you know, there was no effort uh, from Nino and it seemed like Desk the way things ended probably also kind of knew that he was at his limit. But yeah, like 
And then he comes along, and then out of nowhere, he's like back. He's like this zombie, like at the the last half of that last lap, like he's there. He's doing things. It I mean, was remarkable. Sh- should should we just go right to the end where he makes the move at the top of the climb, is able to get by Nino and 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 get down that that shoot first, and then Elizabeth, where you know we were talking about world champs, kind of kind of deja vu to world champs with Nino just somehow able to make the move where no one else is making the move. Just pulling it off. I mean, and I think like I mean, the, the, it was so exciting going into this last lap with this group of three and thinking like there's a great storyline, whoever won, whichever one of these guys wins. It's like Santa Cruz's first uh, cross country podium win. Vlad's first win, big Romania's first win, I think, or it's Nino tying Julian Opsalon's record of wins of World Cups, something he's been trying to do for like three years and kind of plays off as like, it doesn't, I don't know, maybe I'll never have him. There are all these young, fast guys now. Maybe I'm past my prime, I guess. Trying not to show that I care a lot about this, but it's fine if it doesn't happen. And then, you know, obviously we we get into it and, and it clearly means um, the world to Nino to have done this. You, you, you don't say. You don't yeah, say. <laughs> I, I think he was a little happy. He may have shown some emotions. Um but yeah, yeah I think Swiss, it, Swiss guy, Swiss guy crying is, I mean, you know, stop the presses. Well, and I just, I guess I appreciate when he was hoisting the bike, he was literally just wooing. He was like wooting like that. The, the, those were the noises that he was making. I was like, this is very interesting. Uh, he's obviously very excited. But yeah, I mean, it's really touching. Like at the start of the interview, he just like broke down crying and like, you know, had to wait for like, that was just really neat. Um, I don't know. It was really neat to see. I guess it's. I'm glad he did it. I'm glad that we don't have to talk about this. I felt like this is the thing that we were going to talk about for this whole season. We saw last year where the first race of the year he got played by was a Koretsky, I think, at the the first race last year. You're like, oh, man, that was the chance because then he was struggling to pull top fives before he came around for the Olympics and Worlds. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm excited that he that he did the thing that we don't have to talk about it. Now we can talk about him winning the next one and getting the record. But I don't know. I, I guess I'm happy and it was it was a cool celebration to see and obviously like the fans loved it like it was clear that he had a lot of fans and it was really it was just really cool like i stayed to just watch that part of the broadcast like i thought it was really cool yeah and i i think it's you know also again just shows you know how he does it is the reason he is who he is and the reason he's been able to win 33 world cups is he plays it very smart, very tactically. It looks like if you're the one who gets that last climb and hits that last descent first, it's the kind of thing that would naturally make you feel like you've got it. But uh, t- time and again on this course in our four races, that's not the case. Um, and I think, you know, Nino knew that didn't stress out about it and was able to deliver at just the right time. And I think, you know, through the whole, the last few laps, like you did not see him doing attacks that were, you know, he did not have trouble closing gaps if the other people were attacking. And 
his attacks weren't shaking them sufficiently, and so he waited. And he did it when it counted the most. I guess one thing that I found interesting, I mean, I know we were talking about the issues with the broadcast, and unfortunately, it seemed to really fall apart at the end of both the elite women and the elite men's race. But I mean, I got, and this is, you know, we saw early lap two, he goes to the front, Sink is in second. I've covered Sink's like <laughs> poor descending ability, and it was like, Super obvious in that case, but I was a bit surprised maybe, and it probably speaks to the caliber of Marat and Desklu, but like Nino came out of the, the second descent, so the descent going to the finishing section and had no gap. Like, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, he clearly had a plan uh, of what he was going to do. Um, and it almost didn't work, right? Because he was like, I'm going to go to the front and I'm just going to push into that climb, which was kind of interesting to me seeing how the short track played out that riders were kind of falling apart when he hit that climb he was still like i'm gonna lead to the, from the front go for it and to marat's credit like he played it perfectly i, I, I mean, thought marat, I thought marat had to win yeah. yeah when marat made that what pulled around him to get to the shoot first i thought he had to agreed win. i did too and i think so i the other thing and I, I you know i mentioned this briefly during the the women's race but the thing that i found really interesting also tactically about nino in this is that in the rock garden from lap one, he takes the beeline and takes the beeline fast as hell. Uh, and I think that was an, an a major advantage for him. Like, usually a beeline cannot be taken that quickly, but he is able, like, he was pumping the turns in that beeline in a way that nobody else could, though they tried. After seeing that that's what Nino was doing, suddenly by the end of the race, you have all the men in that top group taking the beeline. Yeah, to the point that I think that they, like Daskalu's like, well, I'm in front of Nino. If I take the A line, I may came up, come out behind him so strategically i need to exactly. take the line exactly which was fascinating i think like i don't i can't remember a race where that's happened to that effect um but it means riding that beeline in a way that most people can't ride that beeline and i think that was a it, it was a, a a fascinating stealth advantage um that he he played really well on the course yeah the one thing that I will say about Nino that is really impressive for for his legacy, and we talk about this past three years where since he got a win, is that the guy has been around so long, and you just even look at the last five years and sort of his struggles to get a win, is that he outlasted the Vanderpool generation. I mean... Matthew Vanderbilt came, took over mountain biking, and, and not didn't necessarily win those races, but up the pace of those races, which is not Nino's game, and that benefited guys like Avancini. I mean, we had a season there where it was Vanderpool and Avancini who were able to drop Nino just because they were able to do attack on these climbs, and it wasn't something that he's built to do. He has outlasted that. And this is not a knock on him that that competition isn't there anymore. It's just like he's still there, and those guys have fallen back. Avancini's fallen back. Vanderpool's not racing anymore, and he's still able to to compete at a level where with the rest of the – field that's out there he's better i mean it's just it's just wonderful that 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 he's able to continue to do this you know have these guys come in 
control races for a while, and yet after a season or two, they're not in the picture anymore, and and here you go. Here he is. You know, maybe Pitcock will show up. I don't well, know. Well, or, you know, he you have born, like... He was born to do this. Yeah, you have like Anton Cooper, you have... Sam Gaze, you know, like several other young challengers who have put it to him. And yeah, he has outlasted them or outsmarted them in ways that I think, you know, we saw in the the older school days of the women when like Gunrita Dalla was racing and Sabina Spitz was racing and they would, you know, they lasted well into their 40s, late 40s, um, being really dominant as young guns came in and, you know, still pulling out some wins even when Neff was starting to win everything and Longvad was winning everything. But to see Nino do that, like to be at the, that level for that long is bonkers yeah and he's just crafty you know it's it's like we saw it in worlds where he took it to fluky in that last turn and he did the same thing here i mean he just knows how to how to pick his point and win races uh as you were describing that bill i was thinking of the uh the scene from the wire in in season two where frank sabaka is like tricky dicks nixon ronnie the union busting right we'll outlast them all well (laughs) that's him he's like come at me i'm just gonna outlast you so i was gonna say though i mean i feel like the frank sabaka of mountain biking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> love it oh my god i we're running with this <laughs> uh i mean i i think that'll be part of the story though too with with the way that pitcock and vanderpool have burst onto the scene and you know with the run up to the olympics will you know will their absence how will that change things and you know like will their absence be noted will it seems like very unlikely that either will be doing any mountain bike racing uh this season so i mean in a way like at least, on, you know, from the men's side, without them, like, things look great one weekend. I mean, I think it looks like the perhaps the winners, although we won't get to see, per, you know, due to one of the Olympics and uh, Vanderpool, you know, good chance that we're going to get to see some great racing uh, still from, like, top-level athletes. So so here's, here, here's, my, here's my question, Elizabeth, for you. And I know, Zach, you've commented on this. It's like, yeah, we got this great race, and now we have to wait a month. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, what's the I, I will I'll just chime in here and say the scarcity I think is great. And when I was actually covering World Cup races, and I think we'll get back to it where you have back to backs from week to week, I think that's the perfect I, I think that makes it more exciting versus something like we saw in cyclocross where there are just so many world cups that they just don't mean anything after a while. Yeah. I mean, I think as a fan, am I bummed to wait a month a little bit? Um, But I do think it's a, you know, I think it was great to start the season a little earlier, which we could do because we were in the jungle and not in the alpine conditions um, of those some of those other early season races. I mean, heck, the downhill season started a few weeks before that even. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and I'm a big fan of the weekends where downhill and cross country happen at the same venue on the same weekend um, because it's just fun uh, like all around. I mean, it's great as a fan to get to spend Friday through Sunday watching mountain biking. Um, It's fun to see the interaction between the athletes. If you go live in person um, or even watching on TV, 
Um, but I think it's good that we're spreading out a little bit and seeing some separation as well, where, you know, you go and specialize with some downhill weekends and some cross country weekends and we spread it out a little bit. I think for the racers, um, mountain biking is hard as hell on your body. Like they need a break. They need time to rest and recover. They need time to have build periods. I think racing the mountain bikers so much is something that's going to lead to injuries. It's going to lead to people being in situations where if they are under so much pressure to be on week after week, not getting a break, it's, it leads to burnout. It leads to, you know, any number of other things. Um, so yeah, I mean, all around, I think it's okay that it's not every weekend. It's okay that it's maybe spread about a little bit more. And I think finding ways to extend the season a little bit so that it works for people who maybe leave early from mountain bike season to do some cyclocross. That's great. If we have some people who are able to blend in some mountain biking with a road season, cool. Like if you allow some space for those multidiscipline athletes to be able to participate without having to commit to a calendar that is really preventative of like any other life. That's probably a good thing. So someone can correct me, but just looking at, I think this is the first nine race world cup provided they all happen. I was looking back. I mean, typically they've been, you know, recent years accepted for obvious reasons, but anywhere from like six to seven seems to kind of be the norm. Uh, I, I mean, I remember this bill, you know, you went to Stellenbosch back when it was in South Africa. It seems like they do this maybe about every three, two or three years where they kind of, and that probably depends on who bids on hosting a race, but I don't know. I mean, there's been some interesting, it's cool to, to I called it, you know, right. The North American European nexus, uh, to get outside some to some different venues, Bill, you've commented on how competitive it is to get a World Cup. And once you get a mountain bike World Cup, you do not give up that mountain bike World Cup very easily. So I don't know. I think it's cool. I'd, it's neat to see the excitement of this. And um, yeah, the, the I like the blocks and I like the scarcity. I mean, it makes it more interesting. It makes these events, you know... Um, that are more exciting. It's more fun to overinterpret them. It's more fun to kind of like put more weight on discussing the results of these vis-a-vis -vis the season and vis-a-vis -vis who's going to be on form for worlds or whatever. Whereas in cross, we saw this year, there were just so many races and you're like, what does it mean? I don't know. Like, you know, it, I don't know. I, they do it right. I, they do it right. They make it events. It brings the world together. You can go race your local stuff or whatever. This is perfect. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's right. I think a couple I, – I like that every race is an A race. I think that that is really great, that nobody nobody is taking a race off. That, and that time between races allows for that. The The second point is that, you know, has to be noted is that we are in one of the as, – as the mountain bike cycle goes, this year – is one of the greatest because nobody's thinking about the Olympics. Yes. I was going to say that just, too. I was going to say it's so great. Like no one cares about the Olympics. It's just World Cup. It's just concentrating on World Cups. The sponsors are happy about that. The teams are happy about that. The 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 A 
you know, it's just how good can I do in a world cup? And that's, that's all that matters. And that's, that's, that's nice. Olympics are cool and everything, but it just takes over the sport and just sends it into, to weird places. And the, the last point I was at sea otter while this race was going on. And I don't think you get this for cyclocross. Maybe you would have gotten it for worlds, but one of the booths had the race on, on a big screen and I'm going by and I'm thinking like just walking by and I'm like, oh, there must be some sort of giveaway here because the crowd in front of this booth is enormous. It's like a hundred people all like looking like they're queuing up and I'm like, oh no, it's the last race of the men, last lap of the men's race and they're all watching it. And that, that kind of made me feel good. I'm like, all right, we're, we're in an okay place with, with uh, professional mountain biking in the, on the world cup level. So where are we off to next? I think it's, don't we, Alpstadt. it's about a month and we do the, the Alpstadt Novamesto mm-hmm. uh, double, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Love that. Love those two weekends. Yes. Just so good. So, so it will good. not be warm and jungly. Uh, <laughs> it will be cold and Teutonic. Um, yeah. No, but the Alpstadt is going to be a very different course. It'll be really fun. It makes the trackside it makes the trackside beers that much better. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, this was a lot of fun. I, I I'm, I'm I'm stoked that we're back into the back into the mountain bike world. So uh, yeah, let's definitely uh, reconvene after the next round. But uh, thanks y'all for doing this. Yeah. And hang in there, kid. The Slow Ride Podcast, three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast, the titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast, the Zwift Racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast, the arrow helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast, when's Lance gonna sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast, the experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast, the gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.